You need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Auto Parts. Okay, chapter 10. Jeff, can I introduce one second? A funny story that, chapter 9. Ah. Chapter 9. When our our daughter was 6, our (coughs) our son had just been born, and we were lighting our Advent candle, and it was a passage for the people who walked in the darkness. Mm -hmm. And my daughter, 6 years old, going, you know, like a 6-year-old does. And I said, Sharon, what is the matter? And she said, I thought God wrote the Bible. I said, well, he wrote parts of it, and parts of it were inspired people to write. He said, he copied that right out of the Messiah. <laughs> so we did a timeline and we said, no, this Wonderful counselor. Yeah, that was. Exactly. That was yeah. no, that she was. loved the Messiah at that point. That is so funny. Yeah. But yeah, yeah. From, but from, I never, from, I get a big grin every time I read yeah, this. From, from, from her understanding of things, yeah. yes, that's. Uh, I'm more familiar with the Messiah, so yeah. So yeah, that's uh, it, right. she, God stole it from the Messiah. Yeah, that's, wow. That's good. I might be able to use it sometime. That's yeah. it. <laughs> it's just fun. It's just fun. And as I say, I get a big grin every time I read that passage. <laughs> That's awesome. Thanks. Well, chapter 10 starts with another woe. Remember, the uh, chapter 8 had, had seven woes in it and uh, really bad stuff. Well, we got another one now. And keep in mind now, the, the word woe is one of the strongest words in the, in the Hebrew language. Uh, we would translate into English as, you better watch out, or else right i mean that's that's basically what a woe is and you got to remember who's speaking the woe this is god so god as a perfect parent does what all parents should do and never say anything you don't plan to back up right because kids learn very quickly idle threats now if you want to see evidence of that just yeah next time you got a half an hour i want to take a half an hour just just go pick any aisle at giant eagle and stand there or, or at, at the checkout line. Just kind of stand off the side somewhere and, and watch parents, you know, trying to get their kids out the door or get them down to the next aisle or get them away from the candy or something. And, you know, what you'll hear parents is say, well, I'm leaving, you know. Uh, you're not leaving, you know. And, and the kids learn that very quickly. But what you teach them is my, my words mean nothing. So the beauty of this is God is saying this is what's going to happen. And God always does what he says is going to happen. Right? So th- this is critically important. They, so a woe means not maybe this will happen. Woe is this is definitely going to befall you. So it's an incredible warning. And to show the severity of the issue, it repeats again what, what we've already heard from a previous chapter. This is a woe for those who are creating unjust laws you know, against the poor, the widows, and the orphans. Right? So those are the, the proverbial groups that, that keep coming up time and time and time again. It's, it, it's a woe against those who use their political power to whatever little money or power the poor, the widows, and the orphans have takes away from them. So if you've got a whole lot of poor people and you just take a dollar from each of them, you've got a million dollars, right? So that's, that's what they keep doing. And God always steps in to, to defend the poor, the widows, and the orphan. 
So that's exactly what, what was happening in Israel. And the, the problem is that these three groups in particular in this culture you know, had no, no means of, of combating it. They're, they're, they were just helpless victims. They, they had no, no political influence. They, they, they had no legal influence. There was no way that they could correct all these, these, these unjust laws that were being levied against them. And what the, notice the, the word used there is it, it's oppressive. They are oppressed because of this. So it's not just, you know, oh, it, it just a, a little sting. I mean, this is oppressive. Oppressive is the word we use for, for slavery in this country, right? It's oppressive. So it's, it's like a huge, huge burden in which you, you, you can't move. So God is very concerned with that and highlights that in particular. Because it, it, from God's perspective, that's the premier sign of uh, a nation gone wrong. When, when you abuse those of the, the, the weakest uh, areas of, of your culture, if you, if you willingly do that, 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 that's all God needs to hear. That, then every, every other aspect of your, your government, every other aspect of your social life, every other aspect of everything is just ridiculous. So the key sign for God is when, when you're oppressive to these, these groups. How you doing, John? So verse 2 then. So verse 1 mentions the poor. Verse 2 mentions poor and widows. So, yeah, again, those, those three groups are the classic groups that, that God is, is super, super concerned about. Verse 3. God makes it clear that no one can stand against God. Now, do we really need to say that? Don't we know that? Apparently not. Which... Again, we, we look at our culture today and we see so many similarities to what is being said here of people rejecting God and believing that by my you know, political savvy, by my you know, military strength, by my ability to, to make people do what I want, my power over people, that's all I need. But then, as you keep reading, you discover that God standing right in front of you, and you you can't you 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 can't defeat God. I mean, look look what God says. You know, what will you do on the day of reckoning? Now that's another way of saying day of judgment, right? What what are you going to do? Yeah, you know, what what will your defense be? You have none, and again, you know that going into it, but you still blatantly decide to go against God. So God's saying that. You should have been coming to him, but now God has determined that all your chances are used up, and now, all of a sudden, when you realize, I'm going to lose this, you come crying to God, and he's not going to listen. Verse 4. Again, as we looked last week, you know, the, the upraised hand of God is the symbol of, you know, that's, that's, that's what you do before you strike. So you've got, you got a sword or a club in your hand, and you're ready to strike. So that, that, that in, it's a really powerful metaphor. So God is basically saying, you've made yourself rich at the expense of the poor, and now the Assyrians will conquer you and take all your money that you stole from the poor, and then what will you have? You don't have God. You don't have your money. You don't, you're going to wind up with nothing. And that's God's justice. That's how it works. Verse 5, God gets really, really clear. 
God is going to use the Assyrians as, look at the quote, the rod of my anger. Now, the rod, you see it very often in the Old Testament. Uh, it, it's a common biblical way to describe discipline. Not punishment. Discipline. Discipline is designed to change another person. Punishment is just, I'm mad at you, I'm going to do this to you. Discipline is, I will devise a plan by which you will understand your need to change. So the rod is equated with discipline. To see a little evidence of this, it's like I say, it's filtered throughout the, the Old Testament, but uh, flip left in your Bible a little bit to Proverbs. You've got a couple of short books, and then Proverbs just all of a sudden pops up. Go to Proverbs 23. <clears throat> Proverbs 23, verses 13 and 14. Proverbs 23, 13 and 14. Yeah, yeah, yeah of course you are. Rod. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, but again, yeah, talking about the rod and discipline. See how they're, they're, they're connected together. So in terms of a child, do not withhold discipline from a child. If you punish him with the rod, he will not die. Punish him with the rod and save his soul from death. Now, that should be the premier passage that parents parent today. That's what it's all about. So, discipline. doesn't say your first recourse is the rod. It's simply saying, don't be afraid to use the rod if necessary. Have you noticed how different kids are? We got two kids. One responds to discipline very, very well. The other one, no matter what you do, they look at you and just stick their tongue out at you. Right? <laughs> right? Just taunting you. Right? So you've got to find the means by which discipline works. Now, kids understand this. I don't think parents do, but kids certainly understand this. Discipline means love. That's exactly what that passage is saying. Therefore, the lack of discipline to a child is interpreted as the lack of love. Ask any 14, 15-year-old that has no curfew, that is allowed to do whatever they want, come in whenever they want, stay out all night if they want. Do your parents love you? Nope. If they did, they would, they would make some rules. They would discipline me. Kids know that. And even when a child says to the parent, yeah, you're mean, you're unfair, and all of that, they know this is love. They absolutely know it. They're just trying to test and see how, how firm you are on this. Do you really love me? Because if you back off of what you just, the discipline you just gave me, then I will know that you don't love me. This is how God treats his children. Therefore, this is how human parents need to treat their children. Because if you spank a child, it's not going to kill them. Right? Verse 13. <laughs> it doesn't. It really doesn't. But you see, the most important thing and again, yeah, I, I think most parents today yeah, just 
Don't think of it this way. The most important part of parenting is to discipline and lead your child to heaven. Is that not the ultimate? Can you think of anything better that a parent could do? So if that is the goal, then what are the means by which a parent needs to exercise to, make, to ensure as best as possible that this child gets to heaven? It's not going to work if you wait till kid's 16 years old and have no discipline at all and then all of a sudden get tough on the child. It's, you know, it's a lifelong process that I learned that all actions have consequences. You know, parents always try and save their kids from, from, from pain and you know, just, oh, it just hurts so bad. And, you know, and you know, they, they don't want to spank them because it ruins their self-esteem. <laughs> yeah. so, so we do timeouts. And, and, and yeah, I, I really, I'm, I'm not a fan of the, 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 the recommended time for, for timeouts. And the recommended time is one minute per age of life, for year of life. So a three-year-old is three minutes in a corner. I'm more of a one hour per, 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 per year of life kind of person. And yeah, let's, let, let's make a point here. Yeah, if it's, it's got to be uncomfortable. You see, that's the discipline. And sending a kid to the room where they have a computer, TV, you know, and every, every means of entertainment possible and all their toys, you know, that's not really punishment either. That's just, you know, kid picks up, well, you just don't want me around. So they don't understand that as discipline. So it has to be something that a direct intervention with parent to child. That's what this teaching, and you find it through throughout. I mean, there's a couple other great teachings in Proverbs. And this is from the wisest man who ever lived, saying this is the wisdom of God. This, this is how to raise your children. And yes, times have changed, but that policy is still the same. God hasn't changed his mind on it. You're not going to kill him. In fact, you do the opposite. You will, you will convince them of how great your love is for, the, for, for that child and that your, your biggest desire for this child is I'm trying to direct you, lead you, and guide you to heaven. Because the opposite of that is the death of your soul. Uh, there's another translation that, 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 that translates verse 14 as, uh, you know, mine says punish him with a rod. The other translation says beat him. Yeah, so you, you, you have been, yes. So in other words, there is no limit to what you do whatever it takes. Now, don't start with that, right? But if the child is, whatever form of discipline you're using, that is not working with that particular child. It'll work with the other child, but it won't work with this one. Then you've got to make sure that child understands. My love for you is so great, I will go to any length to make sure that you know I love you and that I want you to go to heaven. That's, that, that's what you're saying. And kid, kids need to understand that. So the, the wisdom is discipline equals love. Now, go back to Isaiah. And can you see that's exactly what God is doing with his people Israel? So he knows they're not going to repent. And he knows that if they continue on this course of action without intervention, their souls will indeed die forever. They will go to hell. So what God is doing is he's using the Assyrians as the rod of his anger 
to discipline Israel. So that as we keep reading, we understand there's going to be just a few, a remnant that will eventually get it, return, and then institute righteousness back into Israel. So yes, it's painful, it's awful, a lot of people die, just terrible things happen, but if God does not allow that process to happen, all will be lost. Because you can see over, over these next two chapters, pretty much the scope of the rest of human history from this period on. Because we're, we're going to start talking about the Babylonians, you know, next phase, you know, the Assyrians come, then the Babylonians, and we'll follow through. Then all of a sudden Jesus shows up, and then, then we're getting an image of the new heaven and the new earth. <laughs> you know? So, I mean, really the whole rest of human history is revealed to us here in, in these next, next couple chapters. And that's only possible if today God allows his people, his children, to be disciplined. So his hand is upraised with the rod to bring it down right across your bottom. <laughs> and God has no problem with that because he knows the value of it. So God is super concerned with his people, the, the, the Israelites, and doing what he can to correct them. But notice there is a woe against the Assyrians as well because they made the plan to defeat God's people. So even though God uses them, the Assyrians, to bring Israel back, God's wrath is also upon the Assyrians. Now, that's, that's a, a lot like, and you need to keep in mind, God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So, fast forward now to Judas. You see the exact same thing. Judas had an evil plan to change God's plan of Jesus going to the cross. But God used Judas to actually bring it all about. We've got to get the soldiers there to arrest him. Judas, that was your plan. Go ahead. But it's an evil plan. And Scripture makes it clear that Judas is not in heaven. He had an evil plan, and he didn't stick around and repent. So he went to the grave unrepentant. Unforgiven sin means you don't get to go to heaven. So the Assyrians are the same thing. They are evil. These aren't good people that God is able to use. They're evil people, but God is still going to use their evil to bring his people back. God can do it. Verse 6. I send them against a godless nation. So we need to figure out who's who in that statement. Who is sent and who is the godless nation? The Assyrians. The Assyrians are sent. Who's the godless nation? Israel. Israel. <laughs> yeah, I just want to make that clear. So God is calling his own people a godless nation. I mean, that's pretty, pretty severe. And after what we've read in the first nine chapters, that should come as no surprise. I mean, have we heard God say anything good about Israel? Right? They're coming up with all these uh, unjust laws against poor widows and orphans. Uh, they're, they're, they're bringing all these pagan gods in and replacing the one true God with, with you know, idols. Uh, you know, God, God is calling them godless. They are, in fact, godless. 
I mean, what godless means is they are devoid of God in their lives. Individually and as a nation. Taking God out, this is what happens. You rely only on yourself. And that's exactly what Israel was doing. Verses 6 to 11. Uh, long description about what, you know, it brings you into the mind of the Assyrians, especially the Assyrian king. And basically say, yeah, we have destroyed many other nations. Israel will just be another one. To, to them, it was just, I mean, there was nothing special about Israel. Uh, certainly didn't recognize them as God's people. We're just, we're into territory acquisition and we're going to take, take them over. Now, verse 12 because of that kind of an attitude, which by definition is pride, the pride of the Assyrians will result in their fall. And as we certainly see in history, and by the time we get to chapter 12, we're going to see God telling this is what's going to happen precisely. The Babylonians are going to come and defeat the Assyrians. Verse 13. God reveals what the Assyrian king really believes. This, this incredible quote of pride. By the strength of my hand, I have done this. And by my wisdom, because I have understanding. <laughs> right? That's pretty bold and arrogant, don't you think? That's, that is the most prideful statement you will ever find. It's all me and my, right? I, 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 I. Now remember what Solomon says. Pride comes before the fall. And fall is not autumn. <laughs> Just want to clarify that. Right? So if you're proud, you will be knocked down. So the Assyrians are incredibly prideful because they were only putting their trust in their military machine. Verses 14 to 19. Just an ongoing description of the, the pride of these Assyrians. Look, look at verse 15 in particular. And there you can see that it's actually God <coughs> wielding tools against Israel. But he's saying that as the Assyrians are the tool that I will use. It's not a weapon. Go back to the description of the difference between discipline and punishment. A tool is designed to be useful, is it not? So it's not a sword, it's not a gun, it's not a bomb. It's a tool that I'm using to bring about something good, to create something. But the Assyrians are so proud that they think they're doing it all themselves. But here God is saying, no. I'm actually going to use them as a tool, not a weapon, as a tool to bring about what I want anyway. So look, in verse 15, the, the tools are the axe and the saw. Now, what, what does an axe do? Chops down, right? It cuts. Uh, we get into chapter 11, you're going to see further evidence of that. So you cut a tree down. Then use a saw to whatever you've cut down to, make it into something else. You're going to make it into something useful. Make it into firewood, make it into, you know, 
carve some statue or something out. You can do all kinds of things with, with, with wood and a saw. So they're, they're tools to produce something good. But then God also says, I will use the Assyrians as tools of punishment. And they are noted in verse 15, the rod and the club. Right? Which go back to the Proverbs passage, like Sue has. If necessary, beat them. <laughs> maybe just maybe then they will get it. But you see how great God's love is. He will go to any extent to bring his people back. And you, you hear that from so many parents. I mean, you just watch Dr. Phil about every third show. Is you know, I've got parents on there with a kid that's, you know, selling drugs and taking drugs and no D in every other day and just, you know, and the parents, I don't know what to do. Well, you stop giving them money to buy drugs and <laughs> do what you're doing isn't working. But, you know, these parents, you know, operate from, from guilt that if I throw them out, He's going to be homeless. Well, there are consequences. And you got to ask yourself, would my child not be better in jail, not taking drugs, than not in jail, taking drugs, and probably going to, going to die from an overdose? Those are your choices. So God says, I know that if I keep doing this, if I keep allowing you to do this, this is going to be a really bad result. And then I'm going to feel really bad that I allowed that to happen. So God says, I'm going to intercede. I'll even use these terrible Assyrians to make the point so that you understand how much I love you and how much I want you back. Because verse 20 is a really key verse. The Lord now brings hope into the equation. Let's face it, it's been mostly bad since chapter 1, hasn't it? So God said, there will come a day when a remnant that God always assures he has will return Israel to what God wants it to be. This remnant, now remnant is just a little, a, a few people, will convince all the people to no longer rely on the Assyrians and instead return to the Lord. <coughs> so this is the important point. And it's stated in many different ways throughout you know, the rest of this chapter. The Jews are going to be destroyed. But not absolutely completely. A remnant will remain. And verse 22 is really important as well. I mean, we've got millions of Jews. It says, like the sand by the sea. But only a few will be responsible for turning things around. Now, the big theological question I have for you today is, how can only a few people influence or turn millions of people? How, how does that happen? Okay, you, you set forth a good example. Then what happens? Precisely. Some will start to follow that. Now, I mean, 
in this day and age of communication, we have the ability to, and we see this constantly in this day and age. Our culture changes just about every time you wake up. It's a whole new world out there because something happened last night that somebody puts on social media that gets around so fast, it changes people's minds. So, Will is one person. But let's say on social media, you know 100 people. You put something on social media, 100 people that you know see that. But each of those 100 people know another 100 people. They share that with those 100 people. That's 100 times 100. Is that 10,000? And those 100 people know another 100 people. Now it's 10,000 times another 100, right? So you're getting into millions. And it can happen like that in this day and age. We see, we, we see it all the time. How the, the, the mindset of this country just keeps going like this. It's a, it's a moving target. Changing constantly. And, I mean, it's been that way for, for many years. I mean, it just, just look, look at the influence of uh, some, some of the more popular uh, musicians, especially that are teen-oriented. Um, you think Madonna, 30 years ago, had any influence on, on fashion with our young girls? Right? See how it works? One person. Um, yeah, Britney Spears, remember her? Huge influence on teens. My, my favorite, Justin Bieber. Just awful, but yeah, stuff that he does, yeah, just absolutely incredible. And kids just flock to it, just follow it mindlessly. And unfortunately, some adults do too. Uh, but you know, we, we know how easy it is for a negative influence to take hold. Preachers. Yeah, preachers can, can very easily. When people mindlessly believe everything the preacher says, and you know when it's when they know it's wrong, but ah, that guy knows what he's doing. He's on TV. He must be he he must be smart. Or he wrote a book. He must be really smart. Um, it's so easy to fall into that trap, and that's what Jesus says. Is I mean, there's going to be wolves in sheep's clothing. There's going to be people who who look like they're they're leading you in the right way, but they're not. And you have to discern the difference, because even though that person led you to do. What God said, don't do. Yeah, it was that person's fault, but it's also yours for not knowing the difference. So you get the same punishment the person who led you get. So if it works with a negative influence, then it must work with a positive influence. That just a few people can literally change the world. Now, we know that's true from the way the Christian church started. Book of Acts is, if it does anything, it's great at telling you numbers. Pentecost, about 3,000 people. Do you ever try and count 3,000 people? <laughs> that's just, that's a hard job. Yeah, 10 I can count. But anything other than that, I'm going to be estimating, but about 3,000 people. Somebody took the time and counted those people. But before Pentecost, what got all that started is another key number. It says in the upper room, it was 120 people. Exactly. The disciples 
So we're down to 11 disciples now. So that'd be 109 other believers that were willing to face death if they were caught and arrested and say, I'm, I'm sticking with Jesus. 120. Now that's out of the hundreds of thousands, perhaps millions, that Jesus came into contact with in those three years. Only 120 left. That sounds exactly like a remnant to me. Right? Of a small group out of the total. But look what those 120 did. How, how many Christians have there been over the last 2,000 years? Millions and billions. They influenced that many because of the witness of 120 people. That's how it works. And so that, that's, that's why God, even though is allowing basically everything to get wiped out, is going to keep that just small remnant. Uh, you see evidence of that in, in, in Daniel, uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Millions of people on that plane supposed to bow down before a 90-foot statue of King Nebi. And three, three guys refused to do it. And the result was the king makes a decree. Anybody says anything against their God, I'm going to cut off your head and I'm going to destroy your property. <laughs> right? Three guys against millions literally changed an empire's policy. So all that says to me is that we need to know what we believe and stick to what we believe and not allow any cultural pressure to change our mind on what we know is, is the truth. That's been the biggest problem in the Christian church for the last 50, 75 years. We're, all, all the Christian church has done has, has, has been to apologize for what we believe. Uh -huh. no, I'm sorry, because that offended you. <clears throat> really? So we have to know we believe and we have to stick to it. That's the only way anything's going to change. Otherwise, we become part of the problem. We begin to support the Assyrians. We start supporting those that are actually out to destroy us. Verse 23. Now again, God knows the future, and he knows that this remnant will, in fact, restore things the way they should be. So God does not prevent the destruction from coming upon Israel. Bottom line is sin always brings with it a negative consequence. And God loves us enough to allow that to happen in the hopes that we will learn from it. Yeah, that's what Paul does in, in, in 1 Corinthians with the uh, chapter 5 with the, the, the young man that, that married his mother. And the church said, oh, this is just wonderful and great. Paul said, pick him up and throw him out of the church. <laughs> you can't allow this. In the hopes that now that he is thrown out, he will come to his right mind and repent and return. But if you keep encouraging him to do that, you're continuing to encourage sin. You, you've got to take a stand and stop this. This isn't good for anybody. You don't want a person like that leading your youth group, right? Because of the influence factor, you see? That's, that's what it is. We all have influence on other people. 
And we get to use that influence for the good of God or we're actually help, helping the devil to accomplish what he wants. So chapter 10 is a big, big chapter. But Isaiah is basically making four key points. Point one, anyone who continues to rely upon the Assyrians will be destroyed along with them. Point number two, if you return to me, you have nothing to fear. Point three, the, the focus is primarily on Jerusalem as the, the capital, as the representative of the whole nation and the promise that Jerusalem will continue to be the city of God. Now remember what Jesus did when, when, when he was approaching Jerusalem. Jesus wept, right? At what God's city, what the, the, the lead city had become. Because when Jesus shows up, the times were actually worse than this. Yeah, the abuse of the widows and the poor and, uh, and the orphans and all that was, was even worse than, than, than it was back in Isaiah's day. It was just awful. But nonetheless, Jerusalem continues to be the city of God. The fourth point, then, in the big section from verses 26 to 34, make it clear beyond any doubt that the Assyrians will, in fact, be destroyed. So the first point is, if you align yourself with the Assyrians, you're going to be destroyed. Last point is, I'm going to destroy the Assyrians. So you're going to pick the winner, or you're going to pick the loser. But know that that choice will bring about a consequence. <coughs> That's what I have to say about chapter 10. What do you have to say? I think we need to realize <clears throat> our importance to the people around us. I think we tend not to uh, not to uh, to realize how people see us, our importance to our position as as Christians, as a representative of of Christianity. And what you're saying, I go back to Esther. She at the at the uh, risk of her life save her people because she made a stand. She didn't know whether she would come out of that alive or dead. But at some point, the rubber meets the road and we have to declare who we are to those around us. And, and I, th I think we just, we just need to realize how important we are to well, God and to the people around us. And so I heard somebody say one time, if you really believe what you say, why didn't you tell me this? Why haven't you told me this? Well, you know, it's like we're on, in our own little world. You say, why haven't I? Good we're yeah. we're yeah. in our fishbowl, you know, and we, we, we look out and we see it all, but we don't do anything about it. Well, and I think, okay. you know, the fastest growing faith religion in the world is Muslim. The fastest growing faith in the world is Muslim who declares that it's the right thing to do to behead people, to rape, who don't agree and with pillage, you. and steal, <laughs> and all that. And that they're the fastest growing. Why? Because they're in the headlines all the time. And those people who are weak and don't know the truth and won't stand up, it's a way for them to go. It's a, somebody that they can join where they, they are made to feel like they are something. Well, because 
the, the Muslims pull no punches, they tell you exactly. they don't waver on, on those beliefs. We, as, as wrong as they are, at least you look at them and say, well, yes, they, they, they will not allow anything else to deviate them from, from the course they're on. And that, that is appealing. It, as, as a base, as a base, base principle. That uh, um, gee, isn't it nice? To, and that's why I said what I said earlier. And we have to know what we believe. We have to stick to it. And, you know, because every time we waver on our our Christian values, we're basically telling the world we have no idea what we're doing. <laughs> because I mean, this stuff doesn't change. It has always been. It always will be. So, pick at any point. You don't have to ask what, what happened 2,000 years ago, 3,000, 4,000 years ago. Is that still valid today? Yeah. It really, really is. And so that's why in the New Testament now, we are called ambassadors for Jesus. Right? An ambassador has no power to do anything themselves. Must, you know, so an ambassador from the United States has to constantly be in, in consultation with the, with, with the president and his cabinet. To, you know, am I allowed to do this? Do you want me to do that? What do you want me to say? How do you want me to represent you? But they, they don't have the authority to do to to make war, you know, to, to make peace, to do to do anything on their own. They just do at the at the will and the beckoning of the president. That's that's why we you know, we're ambassadors. So we don't make this stuff up. We simply do what it says here. And next chapter we're gonna talk a lot about righteousness. That's what righteousness is. You know what the right thing to do is, and you're gonna stick to it. Other thoughts in chapter ten. Or something else. Oh boy! <laughs> Back in ten seven, it seems like uh, like uh, God is well, not see He is He's using the evil intent of, of of man for His own to use for His own cause, and I, I just wonder uh, that we can put that into today's world. <coughs> All the things that we are going through now. Uh, uh, is this, could God be using this, not causing it, but using this as a way to get us back to Him? And whether it's the terrorism, whether it's the weather, whether whether it's the weak church, whether it's the weak church, or the NFL. To, yeah, <laughs> don't get me started. Don't get me started. <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a, a whole but, bunch of social pressure. So. What, yeah, maybe that's our Assyrians today. Yes, I, I think so. I think. It's, it's it's a concerted evil plot. I mean, you can look at it. And see, I mean, this is this is designed. This isn't just haphazardly happening. I mean, there there are evil people making these things happen to just cause division and strife and hardship and all kinds of other terrible things here among Americans that we, you know, so that we we don't know what we're doing. And that's why we need if. Of all times, we need to come together. Quit looking at differences and let's let's let let's work on, on on some unity for a change. I have one other question. A question now. Uh, why, why don't you start with that? <laughs> ran out of ideas. There it is. Okay. Ten sixteen. Up to this point, God is using all the all these things. Uh, for his own cause. Then in 16, it says he <coughs> sends the wasting disease upon, this, upon the warriors and, and so forth. Is that just a, another way of saying that he's using, using what's already going on to his yes. will? Yes, yes. It kind of says that. 
biblically and especially Old Testament wise. I mean, really everything is God's fault. Because God created it, he created the means by which these things can happen. So when it says, you know, and it says a lot, I mean, we cer certainly see that with, uh, uh, in Egypt with Pharaoh. Yeah. You know, five times it says God hardens Pharaoh's heart, and five times it says Pharaoh hardened his own heart. The result's the same. God hardened Pharaoh's heart by giving him the ability to harden his own heart, giving him the free will to do so. You see, so it's, you know, I mean, you could really make a case for it. You know, it is God's fault. God is doing that by allowing it because God has the power to stop it, you see? So yeah, that was, that's a very Jewish understanding of things, but I think it's applicable through, throughout that, yeah, because if, if it goes to the, the, the point that, well, God directly makes this happen, then, then, then we begin to question why, if he made it happen then, why didn't he make it happen there, good or bad? So if he, if he, if he's causing this this wasting disease to to you know, directly, if God is saying, well, I'm going to do this, then then we have to ask, well, when I pray, you know, when Jim Jim does something to me and I, I pray a wasting disease to come upon Jim, why why doesn't God make that happen? Or by the same token, if God, you know, I mean, how many people does Jesus heal? He brings people back from the dead, but not everybody. You know, why, why is it for that person, but not for this other person, or for me? So, yeah, that's a, a, probably the deepest theological question we will ever wrestle with, is to, to, to what degree is God directly involved in the matters of the human race? And... I think that's one we're going to have to wait till we get to heaven to figure out. <laughs> so I, I just, all I know is that God, God is involved. God allows things to happen. But I, I don't see God you know, picking up lightning bolts and you know, directly doing these, these things. Because what, what you keep saying, Romans 1, you know, the wrath of God is upon humanity. You keep reading and you discover all it is is that God backs away and allows us to do this to ourselves. So we become our own worst enemy at that point. So the punishment is, when we kick God out, we destroy ourselves. We bring about a wasting disease upon ourselves. And you, you can see that. I mean, it's you know, uh, countries that uh, abuse the environment. You know, strip mining and just you know, all I want is is that that money out of out, out of the earth and and don't do anything as you know. A generation later, that country's totally impoverished because they've, they've wiped themselves out. Now, God didn't do that to them. They took it upon themselves to do that and, and created their own disaster. They, they brought their own wasting disease upon themselves. So, so much of the world that was once fertile yeah. is now arid for yep. the very reasons you're saying because they just took, took, and took from, the, from the land and to, the, to the point where there was nothing left to take. Well, that's that's one conclusion in, in many areas of the world. We're a little more creative in America and in other uh, more advanced cultures is that we over-farm the land, take the nutrients out of the ground that no longer, that's where 
the nutrients come in the, the, the fruits and vegetables that we eat. So that's we've taken that out of the ground. So what we do now in our, our, our abilities uh, with sciences, we, we genetically alter it to keep the yield up. You know, that fruit, that vegetable looks exactly the same, but the nutritional content within it is way, way, way depleted. It's, it's almost non-existent. It tastes good, but it's not, it's not nourishing. It's not, not giving us what, what, what God designed. But, uh, yeah, but, but otherwise, yes, the ground would be aired because we've just, we've, we've over-farmed. And, uh, Water level in the rest, in the west. Exactly, right. Going yep. up. Yep. So, so we use, we use corn, which is a food product, to put in our gasoline. That's, that's genius. So, 10, 10% corn, ethanol, oh good, 10% less gas. But your car is getting at least 10% less mileage. <laughs> it's not as good a burn. So you're, you're actually using more gasoline now than, than we've ever used. Pardon me? Not corn. Well, exactly. We could use the corn to feed people, but no, we're going to put it in our gasoline to, to make our mileage even worse. And it just, it's, it's some of the most flawed thinking I've ever seen in my life. But this is what happens when governments get involved, <laughs> things they don't understand. It's just, it's silly. Just absolutely silly. But thinking about the, the weather and the conditions that we say God allows or doesn't allow, mm -hmm. we don't really know that. You can also back all of that up with the scripture that says, that says all things happen to those that love the Lord that are called according to his purpose. So mm -hmm. if you're involved in the disasters, even that can affect you in a positive way yes. because of God. And the ultimate is, if you die, you're in heaven. So you want it all the way around. But I really believe that even if we get involved in the negative, not by our own choice, just by circumstance, it can still work for our good. Absolutely. That's why you know, there's other scriptures that say, thank God for everything. So thanks, God, for this hurricane. Yeah. Try, try that sometime. Yeah. If you're in the middle of it, it'd be a tough yeah, Exactly. See, yeah. but, but that's, that's where faith that rubber hits the road, you see. So it's not, you know, faith is relatively easy when times are good, but it's when, when the disaster comes, absolutely, that, that, that is the test of faith. And the sooner we thank God for it, and the sooner we realize that God not only can, but will use this for my good if I continue to love him, that's when the magic happens, yeah. I'm thinking about Jim saying that we don't speak up enough as Christians if you look at all of society, everything, whoever's on top is the guy that's making the most noise. Whether it's the football players or the political people or the musicians or whatever, the loudest ones are the ones that are attracting the attention. And that's where we need to be. Exactly. That's, they, they, they have learned that. Yep. So. Yeah. We're a little slow on the uptake. Yeah, the, the, the protest marches, which turn violent and all that, yeah, it yeah. just, it, and that's what makes it on the news, and then people think, well, that's, that's, that's a, a good mechanism to get my point across, yep, yep, and it just, just feeds into more and more and more of this, this incredible dysfunction, yep, it's, it's frightening out there. But as Christians, we're not really taught to do that. I mean, we're more gentle, kindness, all the fruits of the spirit and not out there in the news there's a balance there so yeah the question is how, how do we get our point across without 
coming across like idiots, <laughs> like, like, like everybody else, yes. And that's, that, that truly is a fine line. But who Absolutely. We, who do we listen most to? The guys, the guys that died, the people that died, ladies and gentlemen who died for their faith. Yep. Uh -huh. the, the, the disciples, the apostles, the prophets, all those who gave up something, all who were dedicated enough and committed enough that somebody, when the rubber hits the road, they knew you knew where they were, and they gave it all. We have the Christian, we have Christians all over the world dying for their faith because they won't deny. Uh, the, the Muslims are the Muslims are doing that uh, all over the world. The Christians are dying, being obliterated in some areas because they they won't worship. They won't be a Daniel. They won't be those three guys who who, who would not who would not worship that idol. Look at the, the I don't know what they were, Mennonites, where they killed those girls or the kids at school. Oh, the Amish. Oh, the Amish, yeah. okay. Yeah. How was the reaction to that? See? Yeah, those I think that's what Linda was saying, yeah. Yeah, but those pe the people, the victims, did not come out fighting. They came out loving and forgiving. Forgiving, yeah. So it can make a statement. It really did make a powerful statement. Oh, I mean, yeah. News picked up on that. Yep. Everybody looked at that. I think we've forgotten that, but we we need reminded of that. Yeah. So when, yeah, that's. But yeah, I I I I think what Linda's saying is yeah, the Christian Church can't just be reactionary. We have to be proactive. We, so that's that's what the fine line is. Yeah. You know, you know, what what battle do we pick? Yeah. You know, what 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 uh, what what hill are we willing to die on? Um, that's that's the hard part. Because you know we don't want to come across offensive and, <laughs> and just I'm, I'm trying to pick a fight with you, which often is the way we're, we're we're viewed. But we're very weak if all we do is wait for something to happen and then react to it. You know, I mean, so as, as wonderful as that almost situation is, wouldn't it be nice if everybody knew Christians? That's the way Christians are before that happened, as opposed to I have to react this way to show you how I am. Wouldn't it be nice if we could have got that message out earlier? I'm not sure how to do that, but. Um, that's that's the hard part, because yeah, you know, we we know we can't act like we're in the world, but we can't be of the world. We can't act like all these crazy people around us, even if what even if the mean the end justifies the means for them, they get what they want. That's not yeah. You know, we have to maintain our own in, in, integrity in this. Yeah, it's 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 very very difficult. And uh, the, the, like you said, I mean, there's so many loud voices out there that you know, we don't want to get into a shouting match. And uh, it's us keeping our, our quiet voice, yeah, that's kind of effective. I, I, I'm not sure. Yeah, we don't want to start getting bullhorns out and yelling and screaming because that's, that's not effective. Personal witness and testimony. Yeah, one, one on one. That's always been, been, been the best. The best way to be an ambassador for Christ, not beat people over the head in a, in a large group, but just one one to one. Like I said earlier, it just you know, you know one you know hundred people, influence those hundred people who can influence another hundred who influence another hundred. It just keeps compounding exponentially. Do any of you know Laura Wiley? Yes. Yeah. In my mind, she is someone. She is she is a, a lady who. <laughs> just exudes Christ. She lives down a mountain valley and she was, was the wife of a minister, a Mennonite minister, and she wears the, the, the covering and, and all that. And she just 
in appearance and everything. She just typifies uh, a follower of God. And, and she'll talk about Jesus at the drop of a hat. And she plays guitar and sings songs. And, and you don't talk with her but more than ten words until you know where she is and who she is. And it's just, we need that. We need that type of thing. On a, on a little different note, but it's one thing that we should be proud of. My son is an emergency manager, and he said that he texted me the other day to say that emergency managers, he's got a master's degree, he's got all these big friends and big places and stuff. They are just in awe of what UMCOR has done for the hurricanes. Oh, great. And they said the United Methodist Church has done such a lot, and that's our hands, yes, too. Yes, absolutely. He, he was you know pleased to hear that. And that's a good example of things, you know, cre common things that you have to do to help. Right. Uh -huh. um, after Katrina, several years after, you know, I mean, it, people, you know, when the emergency comes, everybody oh, yeah. in the world is there and just, you know, for a week or two, and it starts trickling away very, very quickly. But several years later, um, you know, we're, we're still sending work work teams yeah. down, yeah. and uh, the, the people, you know, down in, in those areas, you know, commented that, you know, the, the only ones left are the Methodists and the Mennonites. Yeah. So yeah. So our yeah. No, that's a witness. I mean, yeah. that's that's it a is, real, really powerful witness. Really kind of. I, he says I bet some of them don't even go to church or don't have a church, but they are very aware of what's been happening. You can't. You can't miss it. So so yeah. That's 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 the the message we need to get out. Mm -hmm. And that's yeah. It, and oftentimes the best thing to do is not not use words. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> use your hands and your feet. Um, to the rescue. Yes. Mm -hmm. <coughs> But whatever they need. Are you ready for chapter 11? I have one question. Please. On 24, oh, uh, oh my people who live in Zion. This is a dumb question. But is Zion Jerusalem? Yes. Okay. Yes. Because there he's telling them not to be afraid. Yes. As soon as anger will. So he's letting them know he, that he wants to keep a remnant, whatever. Yep. Okay. Yep. See, that, that, that consistent love. So the. Yeah, love, love certainly looks different when you're you're doing what God wants as opposed to when God has to punish you. But it's still love. Just tough love. <laughs> it's just it's it's love designed to bring you back. Because if I allow you to keep going this way, you're going right off the cliff. And I don't want that. I love you enough to do anything possible to to prevent that from happening. Chapter 11 starts on a really interesting note. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. Well, that'll keep you up nights. Um, some interesting symbolism there. Uh, so a stump, which means a tree formerly was standing there, right? If you look, look out in our backyard, you will see a big stump. <laughs> that we Hopefully we'll get rid of sometime soon. Um, but obviously you can remember the tree that was there. So something big and majestic had been there. That is now no longer. However, the stump is not dead. If you just leave it alone over the years, new growth will come. Now, not out, out of, yeah, it's not going to grow a new tree, but new roots will come out, or the shoot will start coming out into the ground and literally start new trees. <laughs> It's just bizarre. So the, you know, even though it looks like it's dead, what was you can see the leaves and all of that that look very alive is gone. There is still life in the stump. That's the remnant. Yes, 
Precisely. So look, just that, that first part of uh, verse one. The shoot is the root that grows above the ground. So from that little bit that's sticking above the ground, all of a sudden there's gonna, there's gonna be stuff growing out of that, above the ground. Now that's for many, many years, that, that above ground root, if you will, is what was used in wicker furniture. It's very, very flexible um, and it incredibly durable. So that's what was, was used to, yeah, what we would call wicker, wicker furniture. Interestingly, a piece of that, if you let it grow long enough, was also what was used by, some of us are old enough to remember this, the school teacher with the switch. That's what you used for a switch because it was, it was flexible, it doesn't dry out, and it makes the point. <laughs> right? It's not a paddle, just a switch. So that's a, the, the means of discipline, is it not? Do you see? So this, from seemingly dead stuff, something alive is gonna come out of it that is designed to bring discipline. And it says this is the stump of Jesse, not Topper. Um, so Jesse was David's father. So this isn't the stump of David. This is the stump of Jesse, which is interesting. David is the key you know, middle point in, in, in history between Adam and Eve and Jesus. So the focus, though, is on Jesse, that the life will come, begin from Jesse. And you can see that then from David then, yeah, you know, the life comes out with, with David and starts to grow and grow and grow. And then over the next generations leading up to Jesus, if you look at the second half of the first verse, there's a capital B branch. If it's capitalized, it means it's a person. Want to take a wild guess who the capital B branch is? Jesus. Jesus. Yay. Not a trick question. The answer is always God, Jesus, or the Bible. Right? Or the, Holy the, okay, or Holy Spirit. The, you, you, you figured that out a long time ago. So, um, so. Now again, this is so. This is some seven hundred years in the future. See, see how the prophecy goes, and then by the end of the chapter, we're going to get into the new heaven and new earth. So God is saying, you know, the, over the next seven hundred years, the, the Assyrians are coming, the Babylonians are coming. You're going to be on a roller coaster as you always have, but there's coming a day when Jesus is going to change everything. And in verses two and three, you, you see a description of how Jesus is going to change things. And the biggest thing it's going to change is, you can look at it two ways. One way is we, we will revert back to the way God originally intended things to be. Jesus will lead us to become what God really designed Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden to, to be. You can also look at it as Jesus simply brings back the righteousness of God, which does not, not ever change. The right way to live that, that God established in day one is still the right way to live before, during, and after Jesus. So verses two and three depict Jesus as leading God's people. 
Don't we call ourselves followers of Jesus? That means he's leading, right? So we're not making stuff up. We're, we're not inventing the Christian faith. We're simply following the leader. And we do so because when we, do, when we follow Jesus, we realize we then possess the mighty power of Jesus. Specifically, it says there, the Holy Spirit. And so the Spirit, it says, is with Jesus. That should come as no surprise because God three in one, right? So Jesus is God. God is God is the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the Holy Spirit, right? They're all, all pretty much the same. But you will see the Spirit evidenced in, count them, seven ways. On those holy numbers again, right? So what you will see in Jesus then is wisdom, understanding, counsel, power, knowledge. You'll see the fear of God, and then you'll see finally that we will actually delight in the fear of God. <clears throat> now, fear, fear of God doesn't mean you're afraid of God. It means you have a healthy respect for God. Go back to chapter 10. Who can stand against God? Once you realize that, <laughs> that, you know, there's, no, there's nothing I can do to ever stand up against God, therefore I will humble myself. That'll straighten up in a hurry, right? That's a healthy respect for God. So you're not trying to change God. You're simply realizing where my role in my position is in relationship with God. We will actually delight in that. We'll actually allow Jesus to lead us. Now, do you think the Assyrians ever would allow Jesus to lead them with all their pride? Right? So we need to be the opposite of that. See? See how things change? We now can choose to be completely different than these crazy people back then. So what, what is said will happen is the exact opposite of the way Israel is now. That's what God wants. Verse 4. Jesus' judgment is going to be based on righteousness. So the new covenant is new in the sense only of we're going back to where we started. So God didn't go for 3,000 years and say, well, this isn't working. I'm going to cha change the plan. All Jesus is doing is taking us back to the beginning, back to the way things are. It's new because we're replacing the already established old, but it's not new in the sense of something we've never seen before. So God established what righteous, righteousness is and now Jesus will help to establish that in our lives and make it clear what, what, what we're supposed to do. But basically, we, what we see in Jesus is obedience to the Father. Jesus is the Father, but he's showing obedience to the Father. Uh, verses 6 to 9, uh, just an incredible description of what God really wants. And again, you know, that looks a lot like the Garden of Eden, doesn't it? You know, new heaven, new earth. So we're going to go back to the way we began. Then, then in verses 11 and 12, that you know, God sends out a call to the remnant. And apparently these people are scattered all over the world. So you see, it's the focus is on Israel, but God's plan, see, it, it's the, the new covenant isn't that God, God only ever loved Israel, but now in the new covenant he decided to love the whole world. <laughs> he has always loved the whole world equally. The Jews were designed to reach out into the world with God. 
and they refuse to do it. So it's new in the sense of we're just going back to start the original plan of God over again. God has always had this worldwide call. And the, the, the listing there in, <clears throat> in verse 11, you know, we got lower Egypt and upper Egypt. Why don't you just say Egypt? Uh, but you know, defining all these different areas, and that's pretty much the scope of the known world at that time. It goes far and wide, these, uh, the, these areas. You know, Babylonia went all the way over, over to the Himalayas. That was the, the, the known world at the time. They didn't realize the Chinese are out there somewhere. So that's identifying. You know, so everything now will be, people will be coming from all over the world. Verse 14 lists the, the classic enemies of Israel. The Philistines, the Edomites, the Moabites, and the Ammonites. So for really thousands of years, those four groups were always a thorn in the flesh of, of the Israelites. And then finally, verses 15 and 16, uh, it shouldn't be hard for us to realize, but God has control over nature. I mean, he parted the Red Sea, right? And they walked across, uh, the best part is, on dry land. So it wasn't even muddy. And this is saying that when, when this call goes out to the four quarters of the world, it says, in other words, to the whole world, a remnant will come. Maybe 120 total <laughs> out of the entire world of billions and billions of people. A very small number will come and by their influence bring about incredible change. And so Jesus is going to establish real peace, which is much more than just the absence of war. Real peace is a, a complete harmony. And that's, you go to that description of the, uh, the lion and the lamb, and you know, kids will st stick their hand into a you know, poisonous uh, snake pit, and the snakes will lick them. Right? <laughs> it won't bite them, it'll just lick them. You know, just, so th that's, that's peace, and that's what Jesus is coming to establish. When God issues a call to his people, those last verses, God will make it so that all the obstacles and barriers will be taken away. Look, look at verse 15. He's going to dry up the gulf of the Egyptian sea. So people coming from whatever point that would have to go around the Egyptian sea now can just make a straight line. The path is clear. The obstacles are gone. And God says, I'm going to take care of all of that so that it's easy now to come to Jesus. Isn't it easy? He says, come. You come, you're in. <laughs> I mean, it's, how tough is that? The good news is we don't have to uh, travel thousands of miles to achieve this. He's standing right in front of us, arms outstretched, inviting us. Come to me. And that's what God wants to say to us in chapter 11. What other thoughts or questions do you have? Six through nine is not talking about heaven. The, the new heaven and the new earth, I think, is, is a better way to describe it because... You, you don't you don't get a real sense of animals in heaven, so it's a fine line. 
not worth arguing about. But yeah, it's yeah. It, but yes, it is in that end time type thing. Yes, the uh, perhaps the the, the, the thousand years uh, period of time. Yeah, that's that's what it's describing. Yeah, but after after the rapture, after basically everything is all said and done. Yeah. Calling anyone, er, er, everyone is called, and so, but only a remnant will answer. So again, yeah, yeah. With that will be all, the, all people, right? Because that's always been God's plan. Yeah, the the focus is always on Israel, but Israel was supposed to be taking the message out to the whole world, and they refused to do it. So the the new covenant is well. Again, I'm going to revert back to the way it's supposed to be. So I'm going to bypass you Jews. They're they're also called. If any answer, you're in, but. Few, few, if any, do. So the call then goes to all the world, Jew and Gentile, and there is no distinction at that point. That's what Paul says. You know, there's no Gentile, there's no Jew, there's there's no male, there's no female, there's no anything. It's just you can answer the call or not. I think I've heard lots of talk about the Jews going back as one of the signs of the end times. There's. Some some thought of that. There's also some some thought of the the Jews will get a one last chance, some special something or other. I it's very unclear, and when it happens, we probably won't even recognize it. But uh, yeah, yeah, God, God. I mean, they're still His people, absolutely, positively. And so we 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 must, you know, not not denigrate them. Uh, but instead, yeah, just continue to to hope and pray for 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 their redemption, that uh, they would they would they, they would finally get it. And but then that sounds a little odd, odd too. But that not just them, but the whole world. So yeah, we need to pray pray for Muslims and atheists and you know, Hindus and all nine yards. So uh, just everybody would would get it. But yeah, apparently, out of out of all the billions, there's a remnant. There's just there's not total. Total numbers is not that much, which I think goes along with the other descriptions we see of the the uh, the road to heaven is is narrow, meaning there's not that many people on it, and the road to hell is very wide. So most people choose choose that route. But again, it comes down to the call, answering the call. Everybody gets the call. Will you respond to it? So is Isaiah prophesying here about? First coming of Jesus, or when Jesus comes back again? Right, the chapter eleven, both. Okay. Yeah, so like I say, this covers all all the rest of human history from seven seven hundred BC to to the end. End. Yeah, <laughs> one chapter. <laughs> Pretty cool, huh? So yeah, it's yeah, you know, it just but that's what prophecy does. You know, it's because you know, as bad as it is now, see that's the hope. As bad as it is now, the prophecy is and God reveals this. I want you to see the good that can come from this if, if you love me right if you respond to my call th this is what you're going to get now everybody else does this but if you're smart you're going to choose this and i'm really going to going to, going to bless you incredibly yeah so I, I want you i want you to see the whole picture i guess is what what, what god is saying even even back then and certainly what the purpose of Re revelation um <coughs> is is all about where we're going to wind up yeah. All done with chapter 11? I have a question. Go ahead, Ryan. 
I just want to see what everyone thinks. Do you guys think that the world is definitely getting worse and more evil today, or do you kind of think it's always been that way? I think it's always been that way. When you look back at the times when Jesus was here, look, look what was going on with his people. The war, from the beginning of time, people have been at war with one another in one way or another. And rejected and, God. Yeah, people have been oppressed for, forever, ever, ever since the beginning of time. And there's I a think, lot more technology now. Mm-hmm. Right, and that, that's 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 what I think is, is the other part. I, I, I agree with Jim, and it seems as though there is more because we have more media, we have more more news. I mean, when I when I was a kid, you you got news from six thirty to seven o'clock at night, and that was pretty much all you got. You know, so if you want to know what's going on in the world, and that was very selective, so you didn't hear about these things. I mean, there was a lot of you know natural disasters and all that you never even heard of because. They decide, well, this is more important for, for people to hear than, than that. I mean, that's what 30 minutes, then you got to add the commercials. So you're getting 22 minutes of, of news, and that's basically it. Now it's 24 hours a day, just, just constantly. And uh, so we know everything. So it seems like there's more. I remember but, when the Shaw of, Shaw of Iran <coughs> yep, was deposed. I thought, Iran? Shaw of Iran? Who is that and where is that? And why should I care? I had no idea. Yeah, I had no idea. But that, it was kind of like a, like a point of embarkation uh, in, in, that, in that point of part of the world. From that time on, the, the terrorists, or the, the Muslims and the, and the Arabs, just, just but I mean, they were active way before that too, but it just came to light in, in my world anyway that... that Here's something I had no idea, but man, it's it's coming on. You mean there's other people out there? Yeah. <laughs> I, I think that the natural conclusion of your question is whether whether it is worse or not. Jesus makes it clear that we can't look at the news and start believing that that's a sign of the second coming. We will never be able to link current events to the second coming. Says, says it's actually a sin for us to, to try and connect it. Come in there, Owen. That verse I was trying to tell you about Luke. Yeah. Chapter 21, verses um, 25 to 28, being ready for the Well, again, it's, yeah, Jesus says these things are going to happen. There's going to be wars. There's going to be rumors of wars. There's going to be earthquakes. There's going to be all these natural disasters. You, you, you can't piece, you can't link those together with what's going to happen. Jesus says, I'm coming like a thief in the night at a time you're not going to be able to figure out what it is. It very well could be that in the, the, the day that we look around and say, my gosh, this was the slowest news day, news day ever. That's when Jesus is going to return. I, I mean, he's full of surprises. I, I think he's going to come. He says, I'm going to come when you, you don't expect it. So, you know, and, uh, again, you know, just don't, don't let the news convince you that something is going to happen. Do what Jesus says. Be ready. Whether it's good, whether it's bad, whether it's indifferent, be ready because you don't know when it's going to come. So, Again, don't don't use the news as a means of well. It looks things are looking bad. I better get my act together. 
that's, that's, that's not good motivation. The motivation is, I'm a sinner in need of the grace of Christ in my life. Therefore, I will humble myself and accept it. I hear his call. Good, Will. Something that can happen, right? But is that is that a sign of anything? Probably not. Just cool thing that happened that hopefully encourages you in the faith <laughs> to see to see what God can do. You know, thinking about what Robert <coughs> asked, I think that the media is the biggest culprit today uh -huh. because I think the sexual sin and that whole garbage that we hear so much about today has always been there. Just people never talked about it. Right. You certainly never said it out loud anywhere. And now it's all over the television, just like, well, it's raining. You know, it's the same thing. It's just oh. that calm. 50, 75 years ago, if, if, if a uh, high school girl got pregnant, we'd, we'd send them away, right? right. Just, oh, geez, Sa Sally's not in school anymore, right? I mean, we, yeah, yeah that, that's how we handle things. And yeah, but now yes, it's just it's a barrage, yeah. and that's why we need to have some filters. We need to to be able to decide that even even what I'm seeing here, I, I I'm allowed to disregard that. I'm allowed to say that's that that's wrong. Just because it's on the news doesn't mean it's right. You know, I mean it's it's it should challenge us. I mean I I learned that in seminary. I, I, the I think the only thing I learned in seminary was. When I heard somebody say something that I knew was wrong, that firmed up my faith. So I wasn't in seminary to, to, to hear people tell me what I wanted to hear. I, I needed to be challenged with, you know, gee, that's I know that's wrong. Why, why is it wrong? I had to be able to verify why why it was wrong. So it was it was yeah. So yeah. So when you hear something wrong, as we talked earlier, stand up against it. You know, let others know what what we believe, and uh, um, we got a voice. We better better learn to use it. The Bible was kind of like a newspaper for that time because yeah. the stories that's in there they weren't all what God would approve yeah. of, or or what he what he said was okay. Uh, it was how how they dealt with it. The Jerusalem Times. <laughs> extra extra. Read all about it. Man bites dog. Good stuff, y'all. So that's the beauty of this. It gets us thinking about from thousands of years ago to put it into today. And isn't it amazing how we're able to do that every week? We, we can see because God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. That's what I'm saying. You know, what we see back then is what's happening today. And then God will react the same way. So that's good, good news for us. Hmm.